Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. We're going to try to do two things today. One will be, I'll try to give you my little report on the history of Tzitzit. It's a very poor report, very unsuccessful. It would get a C, maybe a C plus. Um, and then we'll talk together about trying to put together the three paragraphs of the Shema conceptually, how they hang together. Um, and then I hope, God willing, next week I'll, uh, we'll, start, we'll look at some halachic material from the Shulchan Aruch, um, now that we have it in English available on Safari for screen sharing, um, we'll, we'll look at some of the um, ritual, I guess I'd call it choreography of the Shema, what you do when and how you say it aloud and et cetera, et cetera. So we'll do that next week. And that might last more than a week, depending on how far we get. Okay. So number one, tzitzit. So I wanted to do a nice book report for you on the history of tzitzit, like, you know, when did Jews wear them and how did they wear them in what era? And I kind of failed miserably on that. I looked at the Wikipedia article in Hebrew and in English, which was not very helpful. I looked at the Encyclopedia Judaica, which was surprisingly not all that helpful. Um, and kind of what I'm interested in is like in the year zero, did Jews wear a tallit, either when they davened or not just when they davened, but during the day? Um, we know that at a certain point, um, our, our assumption is that people stopped wearing cornered garments, men, I should say, stopped wearing cornered garments, um, and so they started making a garment that would have corners so that they could affix seats to it. Um, there were different opinions about if this should be worn all the time or only during davening. And so somewhere in the Middle Ages, there evolved a custom to wear the miniature talit, uh, talit called talit katan, what we in America call tzitzis, Okay you know, the small thing that men wear, may wear under their clothes, um, that developed somewhere in the Middle Ages so that men would be able to feel like they fulfilled the mitzvah of tzitzit without conspicuously wearing an artificial outer garment all day long that no one else wore. I found different halachic sources about whether you wear your tzitzit in or out. There are halachic sources that if you live in an area where Jews are persecuted for being Jews, then it's okay to wear your tzitzit in, um, as opposed to what we see nowadays on the street in Los Angeles, where people who wear tzitzit tend to wear their tzitzit out. Um, but in terms of actual historical sources of when and how all this stuff evolved, I didn't. I wasn't really able to find much. I wasn't able to find like you know, the book that tells us the actual history of tzitzit by historians. So if anyone wants to work on that as their own side project, I would encourage you to do that. And when you come up with anything, please feel free to uh, let us know. One thing that's stuck in my mind, I just want to do this as show and tell, because we don't do a lot of show and tell. And I remember learning about this in um, college. Uh, I'm going to show you frescoes, 
from a synagogue from a place called Dura Europus, which is um, in Syria, uh, and it's from about the year 250. So think of it as the same time about as somewhere between the first and second generation of Amoraim. So like Ravu Shmuel, think of this as for anyone who studies Talmud, this is from the era of Rav and Shmuel. And we have incredible frescoes from that synagogue because it was destroyed in a war. And so the frescoes just kind of collapsed and they were preserved and they were excavated in 1920 something or other. And there's a picture that's stuck in my mind. It's not screen sharing. I'm just going to hold it up, which I know is not ideal, but we'll see if we can get it. I remember seeing this picture decades ago and I went and hunted it up because I own the book. All right, hold on. This is Ezra. What did Ezra do when he came back from Babylonia? Anyone? He read the Torah to the people, which was either a recommitment to the Torah, or if you're a secular Bible scholar, presenting for the first time to the Jewish people the finally edited Chumash. And notice he, he's dressed in kind of a toga thing. You know, most generations of artists, when they are, are prior to the era of archaeology, they depict people in their own costumes, right? So, you know, Renaissance paintings have Jesus and Mary dressed in Renaissance clothes, and Rembrandt paintings have ancient people dressed in Rembrandt kind of clothes <laughs> because they didn't really have any remains. They didn't really know what people dressed like. So I'll show you some other pictures here, but they're all dressed in, I guess, sort of Roman togas. Notice he's got a blue stripe, okay, but there are definitely no fringes. Sorry, I'm showing you the wrong one. Ezra, it's got a blue stripe, no fringes. By the way, this one is Moses and the burning bush. And notice he's wearing the same sort of Roman, Roman kind of toga with the same blue. Again, it's clearly not what we think of as the blue and the tzitzit. And again, I don't know if that's meant to be. I have no idea if that's meant to be tzitzit. Right, or if that's just how a Roman person would dress in that time. Notice if we said it's a motive, m- marker of highborn status, that's Moses and the burning bush. So that's when Moses is just a simple shepherd. So um, here is, by the way, Samuel Shmuel, the prophet anointing King David among the other brothers. And again, look closely, none of them are wearing anything like a fringe. So that's interesting to me, which means in the year 250, this doesn't prove anything about all Jews all the time. In the year 250, we have wall paintings in a Beit Knesset of Jews, and none of them are depicted as wearing fringes. And they're all depicted in sort of some kind of toga thing. I assume that that was a contemporary dress. I don't know that for a fact. Um, but none of them has fringes. None of them is wearing a talit. None of them is wearing a tzitzit. And this is in shul. And we, haven't have, and we even have Ezra reading the Torah, which is described in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, that he comes before the people and, read, and reads the Torah. And he's not wearing something that looks like a talit or tzitzit. He's just wearing his toga. So um, that's just one piece of evidence. Uh, you know, Part of the problem is we have very little by way of material remains because these were made from organic materials, right? So they perished. We do have, for example, 
tefillin um, from Bar Kokhba's time that were dig up, dug up in caves um, in Judea in Israel. Um, I am unaware of any tzitzit-like material that has survived from any time in the last, I don't know, any more recent than the last probably 500 plus years because it's fabric and it decays. I'll pause. Does anyone know any more about this than I do? I don't know. No, I don't know a lot about it. Right. So again, we assume that because the rabbis in the Talmud talk about wearing tzitzit and what it looks like, we assume that that is what people actually did. And that might be an erroneous assumption. Um, I did, I had a memory of some Rembrandt painting of the Jews in their synagogue and I went and I found it, but uh, you can't really tell from it. It's like the old Jew praying. You can't really tell from that um, if he's wearing a tallit or not. So that would be interesting to, to someone to root around for some of those paintings from the, uh, you can probably find them from the 1500s for sure. The 1600s of the old Jews and see if they're wearing tallises and what their tallises look like. I did not investigate that. I'm not an art historian. So I leave this task to any of you who have more time than I do to go do um, internet research. Retired people, this could be a good mission for you, okay? I mean, I, I have to admit, I didn't, go, I didn't go into page two of the Google search. I only went into page one of the Google search. So I'm sure there's tons and tons of material. Part of the problem what I found is that, um, and I don't mean this as a criticism, okay, but a bunch of the stuff that I found is written from an orthodox standpoint, which means it's ahistorical, okay? It's not, it's not history. It's just what pious people think history is. Um, I was actually shocked the... Um, article in the latest Jewish encyclopedia on tzitzit actually really just talks about the Ashkenazi way of tying and handling tzitzit as if there were no other way. There's Hasidic way and Sephardi way. And it just talks about our, on, uh, and you'll find this a lot on the, on the web also, like talks about the Ashkenazi way of doing things as if that is the normative way that it has always been done right? Which is not. Okay. Pause. I'm pausing for question comment. I don't know. Is there any interest in this whatsoever? I'm just interested. Like, you know, Jesus went into the synagogues and he, and he read from the prophets and taught the law. And, you know, did he wear tzitzit? Were the other people in shul wearing tzitzit? Was it affixed on their garment? Did they wear an outer garment like our talit? Um, I, I really just have zero idea about this. Um, and I wish we knew more. So, well, while, while we're on the subject of uh, Talit Katan, yeah, um, I know that in the Sidur it has a bracha that it suggests that you say before you put it on. Yeah, but I have been told, and I can't remember where I got this information, whether it was from my son or from other sources, that because there's a dispute about a Talit Katan being the kind of garment that you can really put. Tzitzit on, in other words, that it's not big enough usually to be considered a garment, uh, that the, the practice is to not say a bracha and have in mind that, that the bracha that you're going to say in a half an hour or whatever it is until you daven 
for your for the the large talus covers both. Right. Um, Yeah, but that's just minhag. All these things that we do that we think this is the way to do it is really just a particular minhag. You may be shocked to discover when we read the Shulchan Aruch um, that the custom of gathering your four tzitzit together and holding them and kissing them is totally absent, Hmm. right? That's a very, very late minhag that not all Jews do. Right. And we think of it as like, this is the most important thing. You gather the four quarters together. And it's actually an extremely late minhag that has come to dominate. And, you know, when there's a minhag that you do in your community and you're used to it, you think that's the correct way to do it. Right. And it's only when you excavate in halachic sources that you see that there are lots of different minhagim. Right. Um, and you will see if you still, if you watch uh, someday when we come back together, if you watch Mickey Rosen in Morning Minion, uh, he does not gather his tzitzit together because he comes from a lineage where that's just not the minhag, right? We think of it as like, oh, everyone does that. That's really totally not true. That just became you- sort of the, a, a dominant Ashkenazi, Eastern European, yeshivish minhag among certain circles that is in fact not really universal and not really universally authoritative he also by the way doesn't kiss the torah when it's brought around and when you ask him about that he says it's his policy not to kiss anything that's inanimate okay and i'm not sure that that's because of his family lineage minhag but i know that the tzitzit is because of family lineage minhag larry i'm just curious avi in your research did did you look only at Jewish sources of scholarship, or did you did you look at uh, non-Jewish sources? I'd be happy to look at non-Jewish sources, but I didn't really find anything. Again, I, I I dug to a superficial level, and I found various articles that I found not super helpful. Right. So I'd love to for someone to get, a, you know, I don't know. I have a one-volume Josephus, and I suppose I could look in the index under prayer shawl and seat seat or fringes, uh, assuming there is an index, I'm not 100% sure, um, and see, like, does Josephus say anything about the custom? Again, Josephus is in the first century of the Common Era. Philo uh, is in the first century BCE. Do they say anything about this um, in terms of contemporary Jews, what they wore when they pray? I actually have no idea. We do know that during the rabbinic period, some point, the um, technology of Tchelet disappeared because the source of it uh, disappeared. They, they did not do good ecological management and the um, marine snail or whatever it was, um, was overfished and overharvested and tchelet making uh, went by the wayside. Okay, enough on that. Let's talk a little bit about the Shema globally. So just to take a step back. So the Shema, which is, the um, confession of faith type heart of the service, like this is what we believe and goes back to um, Mishnaic time. So it goes back at least 2000 years, right? Has three paragraphs. Paragraph one is called um, Kabbalah, called in rabbinic sources, Kabbalah ol Malchut Shamayim, accepting the yoke of heaven or conceptually accepting in general 
the idea of commitment to God. So if you said, what's Shema and Ve'ahavta about? It's about the individual needs to have a commitment to God thoroughly. You know, when you're, when you're at home, when you're, when you're abroad, teach your, talk to your children, talk about it all the time, uh, when you wake up, when you go to bed. So this consciousness, this, your consciousness of your commitment to the one God needs to imbue your whole life. That's what Kabbalat Ol Machut Shamayim means, I think. Second paragraph, Vahayim Shamoa, is called Kabbalat Ol HaMitzvot, accepting the yoke of the mitzvot. And we talked about it, how whereas the first paragraph is in the singular, second paragraph is the plural. It's addressed to the people as a group, as a corporate entity, Am Yisrael, and says, if you keep the mitzvot, life will go well for you nationally. If you fail to keep your commitments and you go astray, then life will not go well for you nationally. There will be consequences to that through the form of famine and starvation. Okay? So commitment to God in general, commitment to do the mitzvot. Paragraph three, which is called Parshat Tzitzit in the rabbinic sources, is basically about two things. It is about this symbol of the tzitzit, which is supposed to remind us of all of the mitzvot. Um, and we talked at some length over a couple of weeks about how does the tzitzit remind us of all the mitzvot, why this ritual. And the parashat tzitzit also culminates in the exodus from Egypt, which is halachically required to mention every day. And saying this paragraph fulfills our halachic requirement to recollect um, the event of Yitziat Mitzrayim, the Exodus, every day. To which I raised, I think I raised a question last week or the week before, um, which we can get to if people have opinions about, opinions about it. Um, there, was, there are so many passages in the Chumash saying, remember the Exodus from Egypt, right? Why did they pick this paragraph to be part of the Shema? They could have picked many other passages to be part of the Shema. Right. So the question I want to pose is, how do the three paragraphs of the Shema fit together? What is their flow? I, I, I have to assume that someone, someone's, the group mind, the oral law from Sinai, wherever it comes from, um, selected these three paragraphs to be in a particular sequence. So my question is, if this is the central moment daily of expressing Jewish commitment, why these three paragraphs and how do they flow together? How do they connect to each other? Given that we know that originally in the Chumash, they're not connected. They're from three separate places. The floor is open. I'm interested in hearing opinions, which of course can mean, how does it work? I'm not looking for an official answer, right? The question could also be, how does this work for you? How does it make sense to you? Does it make sense to you? Going from Jared. individual, okay. Going from individual, from the Yahid in the first one to the Rabim in the second one. The, the, the corporate entity, the group, yeah. Uh-huh. The group, yeah. yeah. From the single to the group. And then the absolute faith, I want to say, that the group has to obey or do or perform. Right. And how do you the get important, 
the important yeah. kind of name, you know, the, the Yetziat Mitzrayim and, and the Tzitzit. So, so the, okay, so for Yetziat Mitzrayim, for Exodus, so the faith is somehow linked to or based on, based on or linked to the experience of the Exodus. Yes. Okay. Do you have an answer, Vera? Do you have a thought about why this paragraph about the Exodus involving tzitzit? Why not? There's so many other options about the Exodus. What is it about the tzitzit that someone, or the mitzvah tzitzit, that someone would have selected this? Okay. You don't have to answer. I just uh, want to leave No, that no, I'm, I'm just yeah. looking there. Yeah. Um, other thoughts? Other thoughts about this? How does it work for you? How does it make sense? Larry, then Bernie. I, I want to add oh, one wait. thing. Go ahead, Vera. sorry. No, no, not go ahead. Fair, but... Um, I have a question or kind of an acceptance of liot lachem leelohim. Yeah. So those three words. To be for you, your God. To yes. Be for, yes. To be for, for you, you your plural, God. your God. Uh huh. Yes. So I am your God because of Yetziat Mitzrayim. Yeah. I am your God. Because um, so Yetziat Mitzrayim will be like the ultimate show of the strength, the power, the ability of God. Yeah. Because then it says, "Call mitzvotai, all my commandments, and with us you will be holy for God. I am the God that took you out from Mitzrayim." I did it. Yes. And okay. by the way, the repetition of Leot Lachem Lohim, uh, I think the grammar suggests for the purpose of, of, right? So I am God. There's a little bit of movement. I am God who took you out of Egypt. Uh, the people who are listening can't see my finger moving, but past, I'm the God who took you out of Egypt for the purpose of, so that yeah. I will be your God. Future looking. Okay. Larry. So um, I have a question, but then I have an idea. The question is, um, isn't there some description in Talmud about the Shema that would give us some indication about why the paragraphs were chosen? My idea is something that goes back to when I was teaching a young girl. So I just want to interrupt. I think the answer is no, meaning as far as I know, but I'm happy for anyone else to find a source, but I don't think so. Like, why do we have these three paragraphs and how they flow together is sort of a conceptual kind of discussion that I believe is not in the Talmud. We do have why, as we, we cited from Menachot, from the Babylonian Talmud, right? Why is it blue? Because blue is the color of the sea, which reflects the sky, which is the color of God's throne. So it reminds you of God's throne. So we have that. That's as far as it goes philosophically. But go ahead, Larry. So that means, <clears throat> that my own means it's up to are, you. It's up to us to figure it out. Right. So here's what I figured out as an alternative. Um, and I and I took this from, I, I got this um, in teaching a young girl in Mozambique in 2000. And, well, her bat mitzvah was in 2009. <clears throat> she was studying with us for two years before that. And I explained that um, the Shema is our, catechism or our dogma or whatever, our statement of faith. And we we look at it like a child would, would learn. In the first paragraph, we talk about love because a child loves its parents, like we would love God. 
without question, period. In the second paragraph, there's cause and effect or, 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 or reward and punishment. Mm-hmm. Do this or you will have this punishment. Yeah. And in the third paragraph, we learn to get into good behaviors and we get into good behaviors by doing, by doing certain things over and over and over again. I admit the third paragraph isn't so good. I would have rather gone into an intellectual direction. Yeah. But she liked it. She was a good, good student, turned into a wonderful person. Great. Good. It I, worked for her. Okay. Diane. Um, so the first paragraph is sort of intangible. It's about loving God. <clears throat> and then okay. the second paragraph is kind of tachlis. Yeah. Um, it, it's very earth-centered and physical-centered. Yeah. And the third paragraph is there's a physicality that sort of links the the love part and the physical part. The tzitzit are sort of like a bridge. Because who wears a tzitzit? The believer. I'm with I'm with your flow, Diane. Who yeah. wears a tzitzit? The um, individual. Right, but, individual in order but to then, remember, uh, uh, right, but then as Barry Rosenblatt has said, I think last week or the week before. Um, but then if you see other people doing it, then that makes you a group. That's the team uniform. Right. Right. It, it marks the individual, but it also marks the group commitment. Okay. It harkens back a little bit to the, to the three paragraphs that I love. Um, at the very beginning of, of uh, the daily service, Vered, you should mute. Vered, mute. Yeah. Finding it? Yeah. I, she's, she's talking about the Liolam Yehei Adam Yeresh Shemayim Vesetir of Gului. There's, I think, like a parable. Right. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Wait, I want to stop you because it takes us too far afield. I want to stay focused okay. on this, if you don't mind. Um, Bernie, unmute. You have to unmute. First week we talked about this. I brought up the kissing that seat seat on the third yeah. paragraph. Which was the minchag I was in my last life, yeah. 40 years. Ago. And the, the, the rabbi did it, and the other people who came did it, and I did yeah. it. So I became used to it. And you said there's a lot of uh, customs. So um, is that something that's universal or regional? Uh, it's, you, you missed what I said. It is totally not universal. And we're going to talk next week and the week after about the sources about tzitzis, um choreography, loosely speaking. Okay. Um, any other thoughts about how it hangs together? How does this work for you, this sequence? Does it make sense? I think paragraph one and two, it's easier to make. I, I, I want to note that in our answers, we're having an easier time with paragraph one and two as a flow. Um, and paragraph three is a little bit harder, right? Um, any other thoughts or comments? Well, I'll tell you mine. Um, for me, um, TT is an example of ritual. And it's actually, you can think of it as a, it's not a big ritual, like keeping Shabbos or giving tzedakah and taking care of the poor. It's kind of a, you'll forgive me, I mean no insult to any mitzvahs. It's kind of a picayune little ritual, right? Um, If you said to someone like, well, what are the big Jewish things? They say, oh, keep Shabbos and keep kosher and prayer and uh, Torah study, you know, you pro- you, I don't know, you probably wouldn't list tzitzit 
in your top three or four if you were trying to explain to someone from Mozambique what Judaism is about, right? Um, and maybe it's an, I wonder if it's intentionally picked because it's a small ritual, because in the, at least for sure, the rabbinic understanding of the Jewish system, I'm not sure this is the Torah's understanding, but in the rabbinic system, um, our commitments are embodied in mitzvot, acts that were commanded, and mitzvot boils down to halacha. It's how you do things, right? Like you shouldn't give less than this to tzedakah, and you shouldn't give more than this to tzedakah. And, you know, we believe in rest on Shabbat to commemorate creation and commemorate the Exodus. And Shabbat, in the end, is when you do certain things and you don't do other certain things, and you're allowed to start it a certain amount earlier, but not too much earlier. Like you can't start Shabbat. You can start Shabbat half an hour earlier, but you can't start it uh, Friday morning. And you can continue a little later, but you can't say that Sunday morning is still Shabbat. No one says that. So all of our commitments are expressed in mitzvot, and all the mitzvot boil down to ritual. And as anyone who studied halacha or Talmud knows, the rules for all the rituals get fairly picayune, picky, right? It's this, you know, how much matzah do you need to eat? Uh, on the first night of Passover to fulfill your obligation, right? So we have big ideas, you know, commemorate the Exodus, don't eat leavened bread, eat matzah. How? You must eat matzah on the first night. This is how the matzah must be prepared, and you must eat a certain amount. And people always remark on this. Some people don't like it. Some people make fun of it. Some people take comfort in it, that it all boils down to picayune little halachot or individual laws. So for me, the way the Shema hangs together is to say, paragraph one, we have a commitment to God. Paragraph two, this is embodied or enacted through, through mitzvot. Paragraph three, it all boils down to rituals. And again, what's the point of tzitzit? The point of tzitzit is not an end unto itself, but as the paragraph says, it's to remind you of all the mitzvot. So Judaism is in rabbinic Judaism, you could argue, is in fact a system. If you just said, like, you know, you compared it to other religions in the world and you said, what makes our religion uh, distinct? Okay. Um, rabbinic Judaism, classic Judaism, is about a system of rituals whose purpose is to manifest our commitment to larger values and to God. We don't just say, we believe in God, we love you, God, yay. We actually do certain rituals to demonstrate what our commitments are. So for me, just as speaking as one Jew, that's how it makes sense. And by the way, and that's why I think out of all the um, uh, paragraph, all the passages that talk about Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the Exodus, that's why they selected this one. I think they selected this one. The group might selected this one. I don't know if this is why. But my interpretation of how it works for me is that this one is selected to remind me that all of these lofty ideas, commitment to God, paragraph one, as we fulfill through the mitzvot, paragraph two, are actually carried out, paragraph three, through minutia of action. Okay? And again, the paragraph tells us the minutia of action, you look on the thread, and it is supposed to 
remind you of all of the mitzvot of the whole system so that you will stay on path and not drift off path. So we have a whole system of ritual, kashrut, Shabbat, prayer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the purpose of all of that is to be constant reminders to us to keep us on path to enact our bigger picture Jewish values, which embody our commitment to God. Does that sort of make sense? Anyway, that's how it works for me, okay? And uh, everyone has to figure out, y'all have to figure out how it works for you. Um, By the way, Bernie, you spent many years in the classic reform movement. So Bernie knows, he could tell us, if anyone goes to a reform shul, the typical thing they say is, Shema and Ve'ahavta, and then, Lema'an tizkaru v'asitem et kol mitzvotai v'item kedoshim le'oichem. Maybe, right? I think they don't even say that. They say, Ani Hashem Eloichem, asher otzeitichem eretzvayim liot lachem Elohim, Ani Hashem right? They say, first paragraph, and then this reminds us of the exodus of Egypt, right? And they leave out the second paragraph, reward and punishment, because they find it, you know, theologically offensive and incorrect. And they leave out most of the tzitzit paragraph because the reform movement does not officially espouse the idea that you are supposed to do these rituals to remind you of God, right? Because they are pick and choose on ritual and don't see ritual as normative and binding in general. Bernie? My, my rabbi who you met one day yeah. uh, for 40 years, and he's still emeritus, he was uh, raised conservative, and he went to HUC because of some unusual circumstances. But he used a conservative book, yeah. and it was it was very. I, I'm not sure what exactly was said and wasn't, but he was always because after the war in San Bernardino, there were a, a hardcore group of Orthodox people, yeah, and yeah. It, it sort of went that way. And his predecessor did so. It was not classical reform like Wilshire Boulevard. Got it. Right. But if you went to a place like Wilshire Boulevard, I believe they say Shema Ve'ahavta and then Ani Hashem Eloichem, Lohim, Ani Hashem Eloichem Emet. And I know this because I've looked at many reform Sidurim, and this is the Shema. Okay. And in some of the newer reform Sidurim, they now have the traditional options kind of quote unquote below the line, right? But it's not sort of the official thing that is said in in reform shuls. Um, But but again, I think the rabbinic point is dafka. We embody our values and live them out via the mechanism of halakha, of rituals that keep us on track. By the way, there's a whole argument philosophically in the Middle Ages about do individual mitzvot have a symbolic meaning or not? Or, you know, are we just supposed to do them because they're mitzvot and we're commanded, or are we supposed to do them because they have a particular meaning? And the risk of the latter is then if you say, well, it doesn't have a meaning, or I can find a better ritual to embody that meaning, then you might change the ritual. That's the risk of that approach of all mitzvot have to have symbolic value. And there's debate about this in the philosophical sources. Yep. Last comment, Bernie. Uh, yeah, uh, Bernie, you'll bring us home, and then we're going to stop. Yeah, the, the, you know, I, I've got the both reform and and the conservative, uh, you know, uh, Moxer and Sitter. Yeah. But I told Rabbi Geller when the reform came out that I was 
because uh, I was trying to study Hebrew, it is not line for line translation. It's the the translation separate with, with our with our our uh, daily sitter. You can actually do the line by line translation. Yeah. The public publishing thing, which I think is not. I don't like the reform, the new reform. Um, well, I don't want to end on the I don't like. Uh, so no, I mean, I'll end on there are many different streams of Judaism, and they all have beautiful, meaningful things to bring to the table. But just, just the book, just the Terry, book. Terry. Unrelated, if I may, I want to congratulate Verid and Dove on the birth of their grandchild. Mazel Tov. Yes. It was a few, we- it was a few weeks ago, correct? A few weeks ago. I, think I just that. heard about it. Okay, excellent. Mazel Tov, that is a great note to end on. Chodesh Tov to all. Hanukkah's in 24 days, so you'd better start Thank thinking you about your, your, your shopping gift list. Okay. <laughs> Everyone have a good day. God willing, I'll see you next week. Stay healthy. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.